On today's episode, we'll weigh in on last night's GOP debate. Who won, if anybody? Uh, then we'll talk about San Francisco Mayor London Breed's controversial move to drug test welfare recipients. And then we'll end with a discussion of ideas in K-12 and higher education, where they come from, the debate between the right and the left over theories like critical race theory, uh, and most importantly, for you as a parent or you as somebody who might be involved in the K-12 or higher education system, like how to make sense of this battle of ideas. So we'll talk, discuss all of this and more on the Lost Debate show for Political Eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Ricky Schlott. All right, Ricky. We watched this debate last night, and I said last time it was more interesting than I thought it would be, and I gave a lot of credit to the moderators. I have to say, this was a really, really bad debate on, on all accounts. It was, I don't think there was any substance really discussed. I think the moderating was poor. The lighting was poor. I don't really have much positive to say about it. Cheer me up. Give me, give me some silver lining here. It was messy. Yeah, no, I'll give it to you. I think it was, I don't know. It kind of lost me too. Although it was, it was kind of entertaining. It felt like, have you ever seen those um, YouTube compilations of like American politics out of context? where it's just, no. like, oh, oh my gosh, I'll send them to you. They're really good. Everyone should look them up. They're so funny. It's like the most bizarre little like five second snippets of just random political moments that makes you feel like we're living in a clown republic and that the end of the world is nigh, um, which is a little bit how it felt last night. There was a lot of chaos and talking over each other. And like, I was surprised Burgum had like several times just railroaded his way into like an extra 30 seconds of they need to cut the mic in that situation i don't know why they don't have the power just to cut a mic off yeah that was um surprising to me that that was allowed to occur but um let's listen to just like how sloppy and messy some aspects were and i will say something i think you have more than time to explain your point well if i I was interrupted by a lot of people here and i want to be respectful because i believe you were respectful last bit but i do not believe in these we're sitting here in the reagan library yes i wish you in the honor of ronald reagan's library if i may well from one tim from one admirer of ronald reagan to another from one admirer of reagan to another we cannot do deals with this is productive i want to hear about I Let's have a policy debate. What's going on? I'll, Let us have a policy debate. Let's have about their record. Let's have a policy debate. And the right answer is we need to declare independence from China. And I will see that through. Donald Trump, according to the latest CBS News YouGov poll, is up 30 points in Iowa and 37 points in New Hampshire. But 80% of voters in those primaries said they're open to someone other than Trump. I'm not sure in watching last night's debate. Anybody on that stage made a meaningful difference in that dynamic at all. So in that sense, I declare Donald Trump the winner of last night's debate in absentia. Yeah, I got to agree with that. Although I would say like in terms of swinging above his weight, Burgum had so much airtime. I was like, I honestly didn't know much about that guy until last night. So I would I would bet that he jumps more. because. But I just looked at the numbers, Ricky. I thought the same thing. Here's what the numbers say. This is this is according to um, I think the Politico uh, Twitter account. Ramaswamy thirteen forty eight, DeSantis thirteen twenty five, Scott thirteen sixteen, and basically goes down from there. Burgum dead last eight oh four. So he actually spoke the least. But I, I agree with you. The perception was that he spoke the most because he was so obnoxious in speaking over the moderators. Maybe he was just frustrated. It took DeSantis from my count sixteen minutes, I think, to speak at all. Uh, and when he did, he went right at Trump. They Governor DeSantis, you haven't spoken, please. The people in Washington are shutting down the American dream with their reckless behavior. They borrowed, they printed, they spent, and now you're paying more for everything. They are the reason for that. They have shut down our national sovereignty by allowing our border to be wide open. So please spare me uh, the crocodile tears for these people. They need to change what's going on. And where's Joe Biden? He's completely missing in action from leadership. And you know who else is missing in action? Donald Trump is missing in action. He should be on this stage tonight. He owes it to you to defend his record where they added 7.8 trillion to the debt. That set the stage for the inflation that we have now. It feels like the Trump attacks were rather weak. Like Chris Christie called him Donald Duck. 
because he was ducking the debates. I mean, it, it was cringe. But we need the law and order back everywhere. We need law and order back in our suburbs. People are threatened there. We need it in our rural areas. People feel threatened there. And we need it in Washington, D.C. also. And Donald Trump should be here to answer for that, but he's not. And I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's gonna happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is gonna call you Donald Trump anymore. We're gonna call you Donald Duck. The thing with Christie that just irks me is he never talks about anything except for Trump. He's just so there just to take down Trump to the point where it's like, I've, I don't even know what is what his platform is, or if he even is posturing to have one besides just criticizing Trump. I don't know. It, it was, that was frustrating to me because like, yeah, the guy's got a whole host of issues, but I don't think that there's a lot of persuadable people in terms of like anyone who's watching the primary to actually pick someone to vote for is not going to be like, oh, I'm not, I'm not gonna vote for Trump now because of Donald Duck. I don't, I don't know. I just find it, I, I find that, to detract from the fact that there are actually qualified candidates aside from him um, and obsessing over it honestly makes it feel like they're on the B team. And like, I don't know, it, yes. yeah, it makes Trump look better. It's not a good look, in my opinion. Yeah. And Trump, you know, was, who spoke in Michigan at roughly the same time, said that he uh, doesn't plan to pick any of the people in the GOP primary as his vice presidential running mate. Here's what Dan Pfeiffer had to say about this, the former uh, Democratic strategist. He said, last night's debate proved that actually uh, none of them are actually running for president in 2024. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are vying to be Trump's vice presidential pick. Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy are campaigning for the 2028 GOP nomination. Chris Christie is auditioning for a gig on MSNBC. Mike Pence may be, have a death wish by courting the voters who want to murder him. And no one knows what the hell Doug Burgum is doing. The debate was a snooze fest featuring mediocre politicians posturing and, and spending down what remains of their campaign bank accounts. Now, that's from a Democrat. I'm a Democrat, but it's hard to argue with, you know? I'm not sure anybody really helped themselves. And Ricky, here was one particularly spirited exchange between Nikki Haley, who if I had to squint and pick a winner of last night, it would be Haley. But I, I think that would be giving her too much credit. But this is Vivek versus Nikki Haley. I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans where they are. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Because I can't believe you know, they hear that you've got a TikTok situation. What they're doing is these 150 million people are on TikTok. That means they can get your contacts, they can get your financial information, they can get your emails, they can Let get me just say, text messages, they can get all I, this of is these important. things. This is China very important for our exactly party. What they're this doing. is very important what for our party, and I'm going to say I am with her on this. I actually was, um, I might write an op-ed today about how I think that politicians need to pick a lane on the TikTok stuff. Like Biden has all of these weird Gen Z influencers who are like, I mean, that's even stranger to me than just being a politician who's on the platform. I mean, Marianne Williamson is, and I think, but I think Vivek is the only like major party player who has made that move. But I just think the lack of consistency is frustrating to me. And also, honestly, if it's truly about the Republican primary and trying to win a Republican primary and meeting young people where they are, like there are very few young Republican primary voters, period. So that frustrates me, that lack of consistency, especially because these are people who are highly critical of China and highly critical of this app or even want to ban it if they end up becoming the president. So, yeah, that bugs me. I'm with her, even though I feel more stupid every time I hear from you. That's a dumb retort. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it was a planned remark. Uh, let me let me attempt to at least talk a little bit about any substance that I found at this debate. It was hard to, to find, but um, one was that it seemed like to the extent there were any really barbed attacks on on Trump, it was about uh, the debt. Both DeSantis and Christie blamed Trump for inflation, saying that he added seven trillion to the uh, debt. They also critiqued him for not being on stage. On the question of unions, it came up a lot, uh, where 
this is an area, I think, a la TikTok, it's hard to figure out what the lane is right now because conservatives are generally for right to work, but they want to be with the workers. So what they did, I think, is understandable. And, and in some ways, I've made a, a, a version of this argument when it comes to municipal unions, which is they say they're for the workers, not for the union leadership. And then they understandably pivoted to electric vehicles and, and talking about how electric vehicle subsidies are to blame for this. So I would say that was a, an area of relative substantive agreement. Um, where I really was confused was on healthcare. So like there were a couple of healthcare questions. Pence was asked about Obamacare and talked about promising to execute mass shooters. I'm not sure what the connection there is. DeSantis was asked about Florida having the highest uninsured rate in the country, and he blamed inflation. He says, we got to address the underlying problems with Bidenomics. Now, I'm sure a sophisticated person could make the connection between inflation and healthcare, although I'm not sure that was a good answer, especially when like there's a lingering question in Florida and a lot of red states, which is the expansion of Medicaid, which obviously would be a direct answer to the question of the number of uninsured you have. And he obviously ducked that completely. Yeah. And so I just think that, that voters were deprived of a lot of substance, which is not a, a total surprise. But I think the biggest part of it, Ricky, is nothing changed last night. And as somebody who was on the Obama 2007 primary, 2008, and I was there traveling with the Obama campaign as he was becoming, you know, he was down double digits for most of the summer and then roared back. And I was with that campaign as we were traveling the country and took back that campaign. By November, you have got to have the momentum. It has to be clear that you have a shot. Uh, because if you don't have that momentum heading into the Iowa caucus in New Hampshire, which once again, they're down 30 with a crowded field. If that momentum isn't obvious, this is over. So I think that there's, somebody's got to break through in the next month and a half or it's Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And I think, honestly, of the two debates, the only thing, you know, if this were the first debate, I would say the only thing of note would be the takeaway would probably be that this Vivek Ramaswamy guy is actually swinging above his his original poll numbers and like a legitimate contender. I think that was what came out of the first debate. But then that's not right. news anymore. And on the second one, yeah, honestly, I mean, I think... I said it before, but it feels like the B team thing. Like it, it just did not. Yes. It did not feel. Yeah. The the whole optics of it did it did not make me feel like oh I'm I'm so excited for this like restorative alternative. I also felt like it was on like like when you speed up a podcast like 1.25 times speed. Like there yes. was not enough time to like sit with any of the actual meat of it. Although one last thing, did you see the um, Hannity and Newsom afterwards interview? No. Newsom came back on Hannity's show, which like I give him credit for again, but I don't know what that's about or why it's like they're they're like old old pals now, but they sparred. It was kind of interesting, so maybe worth listening to if you if anyone actually I'll would like to hear a Democrat and a Republican interact. Well, I thought that was like the halftime show. I, when they started doing that interview, I was like, oh, well, there's got to be more, right? But it was the, it felt too short. Anyways, you did what after? I turned on a Ken Burns documentary because I was so depressed about this country. Uh, I needed somebody to pick me up. But yeah, I think like the fundamental thing is, my final analysis here is that 80% number who say they're open to somebody other than Trump. If you are one of these candidates, you have got to speak to that. You have to find out what is it about Trump that that 80% is uncomfortable with. And I don't think any of them address it. They're not uncomfortable yeah. that he ducked the debate. Sure, I'm sure they would want him at the debate. That's not what you need to talk about. I'm sure they don't, although they probably didn't love Trump spending, I doubt that's what it is either, right? Like, what is it that that 80% has a problem with Donald Trump, right? And you have got to speak to that. And I don't think any of them distinguish that. That doesn't mean you have to like, I mean, be me and like attack Trump in the ways that I would, but- um, there has to be some version of an argument to be like, hey, like, let me pretend for a second it's the electability piece, right? That could be part of it, right? To be like, look, this guy's got too much baggage. Let's all admit it, right? <laughs> like some statement like that to be like, look, this guy's indicted like a million times. He floated the idea of executing the, the general of the Joint Chiefs, right? Which he'll say he was just making a historical point, which this is not that segment. But like the guy is reckless, right? So like, Let's talk about that and say, look, we can love his policies. We can love what he wants to do at the border, et cetera, yada, yada. But he stands in his own way. If you want to you know, better enforce the border, yada, 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 you need somebody who's effective, who's not going to be weighed down by all of these scandals and his own lack of discipline. And I'm that guy, right? That's what I was always expecting DeSantis to say. And sometimes he gets there, but he's not forceful enough on it. 
Um, and so I think unless somebody makes an argument like that, I don't see this thing changing. I'm with you. And I think it needs to be somebody who, like I sometimes hear Vivek say this in like longer form interviews, but like someone who's not getting so pulled down by the Trump tit for tat and like can have this different, completely novel sort of restorative positive vision, which I hear him talk about time to time in long form interviews, but I think it needs to be something like totally radical because being like, oh, I'm Pence or Nikki Haley or a buttoned up old school politician and we're going to go back to that. That's not really inspiring either because that's how we ended up here in the first place. So anyways, we'll leave it at that. Ricky, San Francisco, we haven't, I don't think we've done like a deep dive in San Francisco for a while. It seemed like for, you know, during the Chase of Redeem recall and all that, we were talking about San Francisco nearly every week, uh, but we've taken a break and and honestly allowed San Francisco to sort itself out. And I think we're at an inflection point for that city. A couple of things happened this week in San Francisco that I think are important for those following San Francisco as a national story, right? Because everybody talks about San Francisco, whether it's Fox News or the Atlantic or whatever, there's this battle over what the meaning of San Francisco is. Is it a liberal city on the decline? Is it progressive overreach? Is it, you know, the hollowing out of commercial spaces and and the sort of disaggregation of the tech community to places like Miami and Austin? Is it all of the above? Is it an experiment gone wrong? Uh, What is San Francisco, right? And San Francisco Mayor London Breed is in the middle of a re-election bid and how she's reacting to this re-election bid, I think, is really important. Uh, she announced, just as her uh, one of her sort of main competitors announced, uh, which we'll get to, a run against her, she announced that sh- uh, she's proposing a policy that re- would require the city's welfare beneficiaries to submit themselves to drug testing and treatment in, in order to receive entitlements. She portrayed this as a move, uh, step forward in reducing the city's drug and homelessness crisis. Let's go to a clip of her. No more anything goes without accountability. No more handouts without accountability. So in order to get resources from our city, you will need to be in a substance use disorder program and consistently seeking treatment. This sounds like a Republican. Well, this is why I bring this up, Ricky, is like, obviously, our audience cares a lot about the the question over drugs, right? We've had a lot of voicemails about uh, Portland and and various, uh, you know, relaxations to drug enforcement policies. This obviously falls within that. But what I the reason why I'm particularly fascinated by this is not just the policy, which we'll talk about, but the politics. This is the mayor of San Francisco who is tacking right as she heads towards a re- an election. And this is an open election, like in Nashville, where, where just the, the top two vote getters probably will make it to the runoff. She has her an opponent who announced this week is this guy named uh, Daniel Lurie, who's the nonprofit executive and Levi Strauss heir. He says he's, quote, here to slam the door uh, shut on the era of open air drug markets and end the perception that lawlessness is an acceptable part of San Francisco. Um, her other main opponent, um, which is uh, Asha Safai, uh, who's a San Francisco supervisor, has also centered his campaign on addressing retail theft and expanding the number of police officers. That's three candidates in this race, Ricky, for San Francisco running on a law and order platform. Yeah, I am honestly not surprised. Um, I Just to, to give a, a little more um, context here on other things that she's been doing as well. They have also been doing sweeps of homeless camps, um, and there's an important recent uh, ruling that in San Francisco, if someone declines shelter, they're no longer classified as someone who's involuntarily homeless, which is a pretty important nuance because now they're, I mean, they're sweeping camps and and disposing of people's belongings without even like tagging them and and redistributing them. There's actually a hundred claims um, in court just this year that have been brought by homeless residents uh, about this. Um, and uh, just uh, also a broader statistic, um, there's 7,745 homeless people in San Francisco, according to their most recent count, um, 52% of whom have a substance use issue. And they have a $105 monthly um, welfare system that they they distribute to homeless people so it's i mean it's it's modest compared to a lot of the spending but i mean i understand i i, th- I think there's just the reality is hit san francisco in the face in like so many different ways 
so quickly. Um, and this isn't the first point in time where she has totally changed her um, changed her tune. And another one, this is back in 2021, where during the George Floyd protests, um, she slashed the police budget by $120 million and pretty ov- overtly connecting those two things and, and, you know, in the defund the police camp, even if she didn't necessarily use those exact terms. So let's hear what she sounded like in 2020. Breed also announced a major $120 million budget cut to the San Francisco police and sheriff's departments. That money instead to be spent on addressing disparities in the city's black community. I want black boys growing up today to thrive because we chose to change how this city and how this country treats our young black men not as a statistic or an inevitable tragedy, but as an important part of our city's future. And then in 2021, um, she um, had an emergency request that she submitted to the Board of Supervisors asking for more money for the police, citing issues of drug dealing, retail theft, and car break-ins. So this is within a span of a year. And it's time that the reign of criminals who are destroying our city, it is time for it to come to an end. And it comes to an end when we take the steps to be more aggressive with law enforcement, more aggressive with the changes in our policies, and less tolerant of all the bullshit that has destroyed our city. We are going to turn this around. So that's not good spliced back to back. This is the problem with her is that she... Because of this history, she doesn't have a constituency. The liberals hate her because she went against Chase Boudin and the, the the San Francisco school board members who were recalled as well. And I think she was right to do so. Mm-hmm. We did a whole bunch of segments on, done so much on those two issues. Uh, she was right there, but the problem is she doesn't have a totally clean record on this kind of stuff. And that's probably one of the reasons why her approval rating is, you know, by all accounts, really low. I saw a number 33% this morning. So she is vulnerable. The question is, is it a Levi Strauss era? I don't know anything about this guy. Is it a supervisor? I don't know. But this policy is, is we could spend a lot of time on it, but the problem is she would have to get it through the board of supervisors from what I understand, which I think could be very, very difficult. Um, drug testing welfare recipients is, is definitely not new. Uh, in uh, Florida, Senator Rick Scott, when he was governor, signed into law a 2011 measure to do just that in the federal appeals court struck it down. The ACLU called it patriarchal, racist, and mean-spirited at that point in time as well. Not sure what the patriarchy has to do with drug tests, but... Yeah, I think logistically this could be very difficult and costly to get that many drug tests done on an ongoing basis. Just think about like the, how hard that would be to pull off. Um, I am generally not a big fan of tying government benefits to changes in behavior. Uh, we talked about this when we talked about food assistance. But at the same time, like... I am sympathetic to the urgency though, right? Like this might not be the first thing I would do um, and I would have a lot of questions about it, but I, I am, I'm generally sympathetic to the urgency about the, the general issues in San Francisco. It made me wonder, have you been to San Francisco before? I have, but just like a long time ago before I was politically activated. So I don't have any hot takes. Well, I'll say this as somebody who's been through San Francisco a lot over the years. Um, and I used to, when I was running Arena, I used to go there pretty much every month to raise money and hold events. Obama sent me there during the campaign. Actually, when I said I was going around the country, he sent me there right around this time during that primary to organize a huge rally for him. And I was basically did this two-month sprint at that time. This was 2007 to build a huge crowd for him there. And I've got to meet people from all corners of the city. And at that time, 2007, San Francisco was one of the great American cities. It was countercultural. It had an emerging entrepreneurial group that what didn't become this like gazillionaire class that's now taken over the city. Right now, it seems like it's got millionaires, billionaires, and homeless people, and not a lot of other people, right? It's kind of what San Francisco seems today. But before, it was like the spot. It was exciting. It was interesting. It was simply like a cultural mecca. It had a great music scene, an art scene, and young people could afford to live there. It was awesome. And every time I've gone back since, it has gotten more and more unequal, more and more expensive, less interesting, Mm. and in many cases, less safe. And that's what they're grappling with. Like crime is not the only issue, but it is an issue. 
they have a whole bunch of other issues around, like there's just extreme wealth in a small city as well. But the crime is a real problem here. And I think the fact that it's crime with a super, super elite class and not a lot of people in between, I think is a huge, like, I don't think there's any other city in America with anything close to it. At least in New York, we got 10 million people and a huge landmass so people could spread out. It's, you know, it's not affordable, but you can, you can move to the periphery and still work within the city. That's not possible in San Francisco, where basically every city and town around it is just as expensive as it is. Not to mention, I think San Francisco has a um, like a logistical challenge that, I mean, most major cities had, I guess, and to some degree, but I think to an especially high degree during the pandemic in terms of remote working and the fact that a, a city that's propped up by the tech industry is is certainly an industry that would be the first to jump on to alternative um, alternative like remote working setups and Zoom and to disaggregate in the pandemic in a way that I think like there's at least a, a larger diversity of industries in New York, for example, that might still require people to be in person. But like the, you just had mass flight of of the people who could afford to leave and of the people in the industries that mattered most to San Francisco. And then at the same time, we're escaping the the tax issues there as well. So I think it was just like a perfect storm to leave behind a, a city in shambles. And unfortunately, there's a mayor who it just seems to be willing to embrace whatever mantra or moral panic is fashionable at any point in time in order to be politically expedient. But one last thing on this front that I want to say that I like is that their election system will allow, it's not necessarily going to be like a, a closed primary situation where she, if she's the most popular person, she has to run up against a Republican, in which case she might, she probably is going to win by default. She could actually be challenged by someone within her own sphere, which I think is much more healthy for democracy and will allow less of a favor towards incumbents, which seems to be kind of a a, a standard. Yeah, one one other sort of, semi-related story, and we'll put this in the show notes, San Francisco Chronicle, which, I mean, great newspaper. I, I As somebody who doesn't live in San Francisco, I've maintained my San Francisco Chronicle uh, membership because I do think it's, they do incredible reporting. They're super honest. Uh, this reporter, Jill Tucker, wrote this article this past week called, This San Francisco Public School Has Only 11 Students. Here's why SFUSD hasn't closed it. And it is an interesting read. Um, and so this is about the Edwin and Anita Lee Newcomer School, uh, and it's in uh, San Francisco's Chinatown. And it's outrageous that they've kept the school open, but it's also, uh, and it's super expensive to do it. They have administration and everything, but it also is in some ways understandable when you read the article because you talk about displaced populations and they talk particularly about the Chinese American population in San Francisco and how they feel like they've been pushed out. Uh, and the school is like very important to them and all that. So it's it's more than just a story of waste. It's a story of the identity of the city itself and how they're clinging to it. And it, it makes you feel for the city because, you know, San Francisco, again, I'll say this one last time as we talk about this, is a place that although people like to make fun of it and where it currently is and people who live there are immensely proud. And I invite people who live there who listen to this podcast to send them voicemails because inevitably we're going to get some of this wrong. It's a city that we should all be rooting for because it, it, when it's right, it's a beautiful place. It's a super beautiful place. Uh, and so I'm certainly rooting for them and I hope they get this leadership choice right. I don't have an opinion about who the next mayor should be. And if I did, I wouldn't even share it here because we're a nonprofit, but um, I just, I'm rooting for them to, to turn the corner on what seems like a difficult few years. And I'm rooting for London Breed and her red pilling transformation. I'll send her some Rogan podcast episode no. recommendations. <laughs> Ended um. on an idealistic <laughs> note. You've ruined it. Well, joining us on the podcast now is Nico Perino, who's the executive vice president at FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, where my co-author is um, the head of the organization. And it's a fabulous free speech organization for anyone who um, is a fellow First Amendment geek. 
And he had a super interesting article in the Daily Beast recently taking on Chris Rufo, who has become kind of like the the conservative spearhead of the the anti-CRT, DEI, war on wokeness, um, especially kind of Florida front in that world. And so, Nico, I'd love to um, just set the the stage here and talk about why exactly it is that you've honed in on him and why he's important to the national conversation. Yeah, thanks, Ricky, Robbie, for having me on the show. It's a good question. Chris Rufo burst onto the scene, it seems like, in 2020 during the George Floyd protests and kind of the aftermath of that. But prior to that, he had been a filmmaker, wasn't really involved in conservative politics. You listen to some interviews with him. He talks about flirting with libertarianism for a while, but later abandoning it. But after 2020, he had become concerned that kind of left-wing ideology, what we might call today as woke ideology, had started capturing institutions, academia, corporations, government, and started engaging in, in more journalism to unveil that capture. And in April of 2022, he gave a, a famous speech, which you can read online, at Hillsdale College, which is the conservative college. Doesn't take any federal funding, but he, he talked about laying siege to these institutions that had become captured and how it was a duty of conservatives to kind of use muscular state power to dislodge uh, identity politics, critical race theory, and um, sort of left-wing capture. Uh, he was very influential. He got Donald Trump to issue an executive order on critical race theory. He was a regular feature on, on Fox News. But he has also had much influence in state legislatures. And within the academic context, he has encouraged these state legislatures to, to pass laws that unfortunately what we see at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression or FIRE sometimes run aground of constitutional principles because he sees these institutions as being taxpayer funded, what, which they are. He recently gave a speech at Stanford or, or sat on a panel at Stafford, Stanford where he's asked, you know, what can state legislatures do to dislodge left-wing ideology in academia? And he essentially said, we can do whatever we want, but the Constitution actually doesn't allow for legislatures to do whatever they want. The Supreme Court precedent on at least higher education is very clear that placing a straitjacket on academic freedom will imperil the future of the nation. That's like words that the Supreme Court has actually said, uh, that freedom would wither and die. Uh, and this was perhaps most pronounced in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis in, I believe it was December of 2021, took the stage at a press conference and announced the Stop Woke Act, which regulates what faculty members and invited guest speakers can say on college campuses, uh, essentially restricts anyone who wants to espouse, promote, advance, inculcate, or compel an individual to believe specific concepts about uh, race, color, sex, or national origin, um, limits offering critiques on colorblindness and requires faculty to censor guest lectures. Uh, pretty much, you know, any idea that you might associate with critical race theory could theoretically be wrapped up in the Stop Woke Act. Governor DeSantis uh, announces this. Chris Rufo is the speaker right after him, praising Governor Ron DeSantis for that. Uh, we warned that this was a violation. We at FIRE warned this a violation of academic freedom. A judge agreed with us, calling it positively dystopian uh, and arguing that that censored academic freedom in the name of freedom. And just one note before I'll you know kind of end it there and we can dive in. In the oral arguments in court, the lawyers for the state of Florida in defending the Stop Woke Act made it a, an admission that I think kind of paints the whole picture. They, the judge asked them if the Stop Woke Act would prevent a speaker coming on campus or a faculty member endorsing or promoting or advancing an affirmative action argument. This issue was just at the Supreme Court. They were arguing it there. We argued it at colleges and universities across the country. And the lawyer for Florida said, yes, it would prevent someone from coming to the University of Florida, say, and making an argument in favor of affirmative action. It would prevent Justice Soda, Sonia Sotomayor from going to the University of Florida and reading her dissent in the fair admissions case. So what it essentially does is censor the critical race theorists and allow all their counter arguments to be presented. Nico, thank you so much. And and one thing to mention is we've invited Chris Rufo multiple times, or I have, to join this podcast. He always has an open invitation to talk about these ideas. We have a lot of sort of friends and funders in common, um, but I 
I, we have not been able to to get him on yet. Uh, but your piece was really fascinating, and and I, I view it as almost like a cousin of what Paul Matzo wrote in Reason, and and he pointed out like for our listeners, you know, we spend so much time talking about K twelve education on this podcast, and one of the things that we've been grappling with for two plus years now on this podcast is what is critical race theory. And, uh, and we started with it in the K-12 context, but and, uh, Rufo and others have, I think, started to uh, apply their lens to uh, corporations and universities. He obviously sits on a, the board of a, a college in Florida. And what's fascinating is, and Paul pointed this out, is that Rufo has been explicit about how he wants to make critical race theory about much more than it started. And so he said he wanted to, quote, recodify it, meaning critical race theory, to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. He says whenever ordinary people, quote, read something crazy in the newspaper, he wants them to immediately think critical race theory, and he wants to toxify the brand of left-wing movements. And so as I read this, I think to myself, well, this guy is kind of like a political operative, really. Like, and when you read his sort of, and what Paul was pointing out was that in the book, which is kind of the, the sort of the hook which got you and Paul and others to write about Rufo recently, this book called America's Cultural Revolution, Rufo is talking about like the way that left-wing scholars have like basically abused the English language in many ways to try to like shapeshift to do some things that I think a lot of us would disagree with. But what Paul is saying, and I think what you are saying in your piece is that Rufo may be guilty of the very same kind of sort of assault on the English language. That's exactly the argument I make in my piece. You know, I agree with Rufo on many of the problems that he identifies. I was actually surprised that I enjoyed his book as much as I did. I was expecting it to be a political manifesto, but instead it kind of makes an intellectual history argument for how we got to where we are today, mainly by diving into four uh, intellectuals, Herbert Marcuse, uh, Paulo Ferrero, Derek Bell, and Angela Davis. And, you know, at the end of each chapter, he kind of gives a little bit of his editorial slant on what it means for you know, us today and how their ideas influence us today. And in some of those, he talks about how what these theorists, he calls, he calls, refers to them as critical theorists in his books, and then critical race theory is a subset of critical theory. Uh, at the end, he talks about how some of their tactics uh, use racial and identitarian politics to justify censorship. He calls, he, he refers to this as being tyranny. But then I'm looking at what he's actually doing in, in states like Florida or what he's endorsing in states like Florida. And it strikes me as he's using the same tactics as the critical theorists. He's exchanging constitutional principles for political expediency. And so I agree with him that critical theorists have been a key driver of censorship on college campuses since the 80s. A lot of campus speech codes were written by critical theorists. Richard Delgado, for example, Catherine McKinnon, these are folks who endorse the, these things. And we've fought them since day one and gotten their speech codes struck down in court. But now he's utilizing uh, the same tactics for his own ends. And Herbert Marcuse talked about how repression in higher education institutions may be necessary to release freedom of expression. You know, you need unfreedom in order to achieve freedom, which is exactly the argument, the thing that the judge pointed out in the Stop Woking case. And, and so that's what we oppose Chris Rufo on. We agree with him on many of the problems that some of these institutions have been captured. And there are probably a lot of reforms that we would agree on, but we don't agree that censorship and a restriction on academic freedom can be one of those reforms. I mean, it just can't because it'll get struck down. The reform will never be able to be implemented. And on a first principles basis, we think it's wrong as well. Yeah, this is something that we call out in in our book, and I feel like it's it's a book that and Nico has been very helpful behind the scenes in editing the book, by the way. But I think it's a book that will make no one totally happy because we do call out the right pretty considerably in this kind of fighting might with might. And there was a quote that you added into your article that I thought was really powerful. I actually hadn't heard it before. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, which that I'm going to write that down and keep that one because I it's it's so frustrating to me when I see people as I mean it's no secret that I'm I'm more right leaning and when I see people fighting might with might in a liberalism with a liberalism it drives me crazy but I also do share a lot of the um I don't know some of some of Rufo's concerns about about how to uh, or about what's going on in the world frankly um I just think all of his solutions are quite wrong one of the things that's frustrating I, I think to me 
and I think to a lot of our audience has been, you know, I was a school principal, Nico, and and I oh, was were you really? That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> I was a school principal at a time when certain ideas were were hitting the system, including from certain organizations that were education reform organizations that I allied with, like Teach for America, where they started to advocate for things that eventually got grouped into CRT that I hated. You know, things like you know moving away from student achievement and focusing on like activism, but it was like a hollow version of activism, right? Like things that I think are wrong and I wanted to argue against. But then I had this sense that I was looking at some of these figures like Rufo and I'm like, well, I don't quite trust you either. And I didn't know where to go. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I started to see people exaggerating some of the things that were happening in classrooms, in some ways benefiting from those exaggerations and then replacing them sometimes with things that are like Prager U, for example, like things that were their own bad version going the other way, like Stop Woke Act is a version of this at higher ed. Obviously, there are K-12 versions of this that like ban teaching of anything that may make kids feel like anguished because of their race or whatever, like things that are overly broad and restrictive. When you look at the K-12 setting, where do we stand today on this fight with CRT? Because it's hard to trace where we are. Like, do you, do you view CRT as a threat to kids? Is this like a prominent movement? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? I, I, I myself, as somebody who follow K-12, honestly don't even know where we are today on this. Yeah. Well, I have two kids, neither of which are school age yet. Uh, they're two and four months. And so I don't have any personal experience about this. But let's talk a little bit about broader principles and how K-12 might be different than the higher education context. And then we can kind of drill down into what maybe a best practice is in K through 12 and what's actually happening there. Higher education, we're dealing usually with adult students and faculty members who have academic freedom, people who voluntarily choose, choose to be there. And the courts have been pretty clear, and I think they're right on this, that academic freedom must reign, free speech must reign. The purpose of these colleges and universities is the preservation, dissemination, and creation of knowledge. And those, that, that, those three things can't happen. Yes, yeah, Gr- Graham Wood said, he said, quote, Chris Rufo doesn't understand that radicals and nut jobs make universities great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's like a good well, it's like you throw out an idea and then you learn more about the idea by grappling with all the dissenters, right? And and for example, Stop Woke in Florida, like the dissenters aren't able to participate in the conversation around affirmative action because it's been right. banned, right? Right. K-12 is different because in the public uh, school context, it's compulsory, right? Um, curriculum is set by the state and regulated by the school board. And we're dealing with minors. Uh, parents kind of need to be involved in this process. I don't think anyone would be on board with compulsory K through 12 education if parents didn't have any say in, in the process. And to use Graham Wood's standard, radicals and nut jobs, probably not as good, you know, helpful in the you know, elementary school, for example, you know. No, and you know, in, in elementary school, you're often kind of disseminating knowledge that, you know, you're trying to determine what the best knowledge in society is and, and teaching the students about it. But I, I would say that, you know, a good K through 12 education would also encourage students to think critically. And thinking critically means exposing them to a multiple of ideas on any given topic, how those ideas might interact with each other. And from that kind of interaction, have a greater conception of what the truth is, and also a greater education in what it means to be a citizen in a pluralistic democracy. So while you, know, you can, quote unquote, kind of indoctrinate students in a, in a K through 12 environment, I don't know that it's you should. And, I, and so when you take these highly politicized curricula, you know, PragerU, I don't know a ton about it, but my understanding is it's fairly conservative, um, and use that as the basis for your curriculum, I, I think you're doing your students a disservice if you're not also sharing with them perspectives that might disagree with what PragerU is presenting. And Nico, it seems like what I get a read on, and Rufo says this explicitly at various points, and I think this is one thing that you take issue with, is, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he almost thinks like the answer to previous slant, which I will grant him, there definitely has been a slant in higher ed. And, and depending on where you live, there, there may be, if you live in Asheville, North Carolina or something, right? Or Woodstock, New York, there's going to be a slant in a certain way. Sure. Uh, for sure. Some people, liberals in my sort of corner would say, like, if you live in Ridgewood, Mississippi, it might be the other way, right? But what he thinks is, okay, because of this slant, we need to overcorrect now. And we almost used to, we need to use 
what I think you view as illiberal means to achieve a liberal end. And in that case, it may be Prager U to correct for whatever is going on, or maybe the Stop Woke Act, because there's just been such a proliferation of left-wing academics that we need to like muzzle them, right? This is what I, it seems like you guys are reacting to, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. This is the argument that Herbert Marcuse made in his repressive to- tolerance essay, which essentially was that <laughs> our institutions have been captured by conservatives who are repressive. And so we need to censor them in order to realign these institutions. It sounds a lot like Chris Rufo's argument, yeah. right? In the higher ed context. And so Rufo, you know, Ricky mentioned the Audre Lorde quote before, you know, the master's tools will never dis- dismantle the master's house. Rufo is using, in this case, the master's tools to try and dismantle the master's house. And as as they've demonstrated, it's effective, but it becomes a vicious cycle. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And so, for example, if Rufo and and Florida officials get what they want with the Stop Woke Act, any Democratic state legislature, including if it becomes one in Florida, can do the exact same thing. And the lawyer in the Florida case before the judge said, you know, if a Democratic administration comes out in the future, they can ban discussion of American exceptionalism. We're fighting against this. We filed a lawsuit in California recently where a big community college district has mandated that certain highly politicized concepts and ideas of surrounding DEI be incorporated into teaching, including like mathematics and physics, right? And it's, it's the opposite of what they're doing or the same principles as what they're doing in Florida, right? And so I think Rufo kind of admires what the critical theorists have accomplished and wants to use those same tools kind of in a Saul Alinsky way for his own ends. But it's just going to be a vicious cycle race to the bottom where it's all political expediency and zero principle. Absolutely. I share your concerns entirely. And it's, it's, I also like kind of understand the mindset of saying like, oh, there's this authoritarianism that's running unchecked. And so we can only fight it with that. But this, I think it's just like a sad reality that's so consistent um, across the board in politics where like principle and nuance and and actually being somebody who isn't fighting with might or doesn't have the the provocative sexy bill that that fights back with the the iron fist is consistently just not favored in in our political landscape which very much depresses me but nico i know you have a flight to catch so thank you so much for joining the podcast today it's been awesome and everyone who's listening should check out fire and all the the great stuff that they're doing So, Ravi, that was a super interesting conversation. And one thing that I think is funny, having been a fellow at FIRE for a while now, is that we constantly get like painted as a conservative organization, which I, actually the vast majority of the staff is on the left, and they they hold no friends too close if they violate the First Amendment. So I was glad to see um, Nico grace the pages of the, the Daily Beast and actually um, call out a liberalism in all its shapes and forms. So, Yeah, for sure. It, it, same true um, reason, which I know you've you've been a, you know you've written for Reason before and been a member of that team, uh, and you know I think about this. This is an interesting sort of topic for us, like as we kind of head out. You know, you on your book tour, and and I had a chance to read your book this week. Finally, it's amazing, and I think it in many ways has echoes of of what Nico's talking about. And it's no surprise to me that he was involved in your book because. Obviously, we think about K to 12, and I think about that a lot. The higher ed debate is interesting, and I think he he and you make a lot of really valid points about where do we go from here in higher ed. And in a, in a weird way, I'm a little bit more confident that that will sort itself out just because of the fact that it's all adults involved. And I think FIRE has a greater series of tools at its disposal for higher ed. My worry is in the K to 12 system, where, as Nico pointed out, it's a it's a it's a different question, and in in K to twelve, you have to be a little tighter about what you allow or don't allow because it's kids involved, and the way that curricular decisions make are are way more top down than in a university where like every professor is kind of their own fiefdom. And I'm left just wondering, you know, what the state of sort of K to twelve pluralism is today. You know, like what is the we don't have a shared sense at all about what the role of schools are in allowing for a debate around different ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. It's It feels to me like we're adrift. Yeah. And I think it's even 
it's so much more difficult than like in the higher ed setting. You can you have a discrete age group of 18 to 22 year olds or beyond versus like there's obviously a gradient in the K to 12 system where there's a, a, like high schoolers are going to be thinking about provocative political ideas and discussing them and have opinions on them in a way that, you know, a younger kid might not. And so it's even that much more complex to figure out like the the role of of free speech versus like working as a a, a federal employee or a public employee as a teacher in a K to 12 setting. So it's definitely a much more nuanced and kind of tricky tripwire conversation to have. Yeah. And it's like, and I'm glad that people like you are like, who are associated with the right, even though you're not like a mega figure, you know, it's like, like that fact that you guys are calling out some of this stuff, because I think like a lot of people I, I imagine in our audience might be like Biden voters, they might might be independents or whatever, but they also look at the past five to six years, maybe longer and say, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that w- that's being pushed in the K to 12 system and in certain cases, higher ed that I'm not for. Like in my case, you know, Teach for America was holding these trainings where they were like explicitly pushing our teachers to have less of a focus on academic achievement and have a more of a focus on activism and a lot of sort of squishy postmodern concepts. And I'm like, was vehemently against that. And a lot of people I know in the K-12 setting are vehemently against that. But then also don't completely trust the Rufo characters. Yeah. And so they're like, well, where do I go from here, right? Where some of the most forceful sort of opponents of some of those ideas are people who themselves are political activists who have a vision that people don't share. So that's why I think it's as important as ever to have figures like you guys who are maybe, you know, not liberal figures, but who uh, are willing to, you know, quote unquote, police the right a little bit from a perspective where maybe people on the right are more willing to listen to you guys than somebody like me who's been explicitly associated with the Democratic Party, you know? Well, thankfully, I have Greg to be the actual liberal of our team. So yes, I'll, just, and the, I'll take the back seat. <laughs> well, the book is great. Uh, I, I know that um, we were supposed to interview today, but Greg was sick. So like people are listening at some point, we'll do a, a thorough, thorough job on that. But I, I really enjoyed it. It was so well done. Uh, and Thank I think you. like a lot of people have tried to do what you guys have done, but I think what you re- did really well was lay an intellectual foundation about where we are today and then provide a ton of context about the past few years which I really think is the strength of the book. I've not seen a comprehensive history of just the past 10 years of what's happened. And you guys really pulled out some really heinous examples of censorship and you know the climate of fear and have like an organized way of thinking about it. So really good job. Thank you. Well, that's it. That's what we have for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Our voicemail is 321-200-0570. And we will be back here next week. <laughs>